0: Good morning. We're going to keep moving along. Our next speaker this morning is Dr. Jeff Meffert. He is a family physician turned dermatologist who says he has always relied on PAs and other health professionals to help get his job done. He is currently in private practice and part-time faculty at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Meffert. You all are going to get so tired of hearing me by the end of this morning. The, um, I guess he's checking my level. When, when we have uh, someone come in, and we look at them, and we just walk in the room, and we say that we think they have this or that, a lot of times they're amazed, because they don't really, they've been to a number of other providers who've kind of tried this, tried that, and they want to know, how do you know what it is that I have? And part of it is, as you walk into the room, the very first thing that you do is look at the area because you know if they're going to point at the nose that's going to steer you in one direction. if they put out their palm that's going to steer you in another uh, and so what i 'm going to do in this talk, which actually is going to make a really great three hour talk, um, is focus on some of the you know what what are you thinking of when you look at a certain body part, but then also um, some of the pitfalls and pearls for that particular body part in certain conditions. And at some point, I'm going to need to have my slides up, or I can tap dance, or take questions early, or... There we go. Okay. Um, I, have, I have absolutely no conflict of interest because the drug companies won't hire me. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to point out some, some exceptions, and I, I, do, I do thank the uh, Society of Dermatologic PAs. Whenever I've spoken to them in the past uh, for you guys, they always give me talks that I've never done before. And so the good news is is that you get a brand new, fresh, not canned for the last five year talk. The bad news is is that usually anything I tell you guys is the first time I'm doing that talk in public. Now, just to sort of uh, negate the whole next hour before I even start, uh, I'd like to talk about the Davis Rule, uh, named after Dr. Brian Davis, one of my mentors in, in San Antonio, some of you all may know him, and, and his rule is, if you're having trouble figuring something out, take whatever it is you're looking at and move it somewhere else and then it may make more sense. So while it is true there really is a regional dermatology, in fact there's books devoted to regional dermatology. The exceptions are out there and things will sometimes pop up in places where they're not supposed to and they'll sometimes pop up on people that they're not supposed to pop up on. So always keep that in mind. So these are kind of the topics that I'm I'm gonna be running down. And uh, this is sort of your approach. You know, when someone comes in, is it a bump check? Is it a a rash? Uh, I like, by the way, bump checks a whole lot more than I like rashes. Uh, Yesterday was a cognitive rash day and it just wore me out. Uh, But different things appear in different uh, body areas. And we're gonna start with the face since that's usually uh, ground zero for a lot of patients' complaints. And that's where you have to start out by picking up some history. Is this new? Is this brand new? Is this really old, or is this subacute? Has this been something that's been smoldering for a while? Uh, because what you, how fast it appears already starts to sort out what, how you're going to approach a facial lesion. So sort of the prototypes here are if you have an acute inflammatory thing uh, going on on the face, it's a bump, it's brand new, um, you will probably be thinking of acne, rosacea granulomas, or maybe an abscess. Now, an exception, of course, in terms of it not being inflammatory, but neoplastic is the keratoacanthoma. Um, most other tumors, if a patient shows me a basal cell that's three centimeters across and tells me that this, is, this popped up in the last month, I won't call my patient a liar, especially because it's usually a little old lady, and I don't call little old ladies liars, but that's what I'm thinking. It's, it's been there a while. Keratoacanthomas, if someone comes in with a one-centimeter keratoacanthoma and they say it's been there for a month, they may be telling the truth. These things can show up very, very fast. And I've had patients that I've seen at a two-month interval and have them pop up with one of these things and go, how did I miss that? Well, I didn't. They come up that fast. Now, the subacute, and subacute both in appearance and in change, in terms of uh, bumps, usually you're talking about some kind of neoplasm. Um, and these may take months, they may take years, but uh, they are steadily growing. Of course, you're, you have your skin cancers, but, but one of the exceptions going the other way for subacute in being inflammatory rather than neoplastic would be discoid lupus. And these can be very, very puzzling. Uh, some are, you, you have your classic pictures of the people with the model, dyspigmentation uh... usually african-american and they have big patches on their ears or nose but it can be much more subtle than that you can have just sort of a dusky patch that is growing not fast but slowly and over months rather than acutely after a, a single sun exposure as will show up uh... in giving you a rash with uh, with acute systemic lupus now if you have more of the chronic uh... bump on the face the one that's been there for for a decade or growing slow uh, then you're still probably talking about a neoplasm, but in this case benign, and there's any number of things that can pop up there. The exception there, instead of being benign neoplasm, would be malignant neoplasm, is lentico maligna. And uh, this, this melanoma in situ variant, on, usually on the cheek of older sun-damaged patients, it can smolder for years. It can smolder for decades. There's people that will sometimes produce a driver's license done 20 years prior, and you can see it there. Uh, why they don't go bad during that time period. Uh, I still don't think we really understand the biology behind these things. So uh, you're, you're talking about a patient history here to determine how long it's been there. And I would say you, you will use that. You'll use it to process it in your deciding whether you want to worry about this or not, whether you want to biopsy it or not. But you always have to keep in mind you can't bet everything on the patient's history. I'm not saying that they lie outright, though sometimes they do, uh, for peculiar reasons. But a lot of times they just lose track. I lose track. We all lose track of time. And something, uh, especially at my now advanced age, uh, being over 50, sorry, over 50 people. But I find that anytime time I think something, I'm trying to figure out when I saw something, when I saw a movie, when I read a book, uh, when was the last time I met someone, I always have to take whatever time period it is and add to. Sometimes I add three. So if I think it was two years ago, it was five. If I think it was two months ago, it was four. So patients, they, they will tend to ignore things for a while. So you can't completely go by history. So where, where are the things that you have to you know, worry about the most in this? And it was the last one I mentioned, the whole maligna issue. Um, these may never become invasive melanoma. Uh, so they may sit there for several decades and never go bad. Or they can go bad tomorrow. So we, don't, we, we can't really ignore these things. In terms of biopsy, you know, what I really would discourage is the, the multiple little punch biopsy things that sometimes people will do because they don't want to disfigure the face. Obviously, if you have something that really looks like an invasive melanoma, you're going to want to do an excisional biopsy, take the whole thing, maybe with a little bit of a margin. But in this case, if this guy has, well, this really looks bad, but, uh, but let's say you have the more subtle ones that you're not sure whether it is a lentigo maligna, a melanoma in situ, or if it's just a big flat seb. And you don't want to take off their whole cheek for that reason or you know, refer them to someone to take off their whole cheek for that reason. You can do incisional biopsies, uh, basically take a wedge, and I'd love to have a pointer here that they said was here. but it, Oh, it's a lightsaber. Cool. Um, you can take a wedge, uh, just like an ellipse, right in the middle of that thing. And that'll be enough tissue for the pathologist to tell you whether or not it's uh, something to worry about or not. And if it does turn out to be benign, you really haven't disfigured things too much. There is data that shows that incisional biopsies do not uh, cause tumors to metastasize. And that's whether you're talking um, melanoma, basal cell, or squamous cell. So uh, don't just do the little punch there and the little punch there. Get a big enough piece that your uh, dermatopathologist can tell you what that really is. Uh, if you're just taking a piece of it, it's not necessary to take a margin. If I have a smaller lesion, I always try to get a couple of millimeters around it. But uh, in this case, uh, you know, basically you want a, a big, long strip of skin that they can look at. Because you know, remember, when you're talking about melanocytic uh, malignancies, yes, there can be some crazy-looking melanocytes in there, but it's really more what they're doing than what they look like. Uh, you can give a good pathologist a little tiny piece of a basal cell, and they'll tell you it's a basal cell. But if you just send them a few melanocytes off of the middle of this thing, they may not be able to. They may give you a, a false positive or a false negative. Now, eventually, you're going to want to do margins. Now, let's say you do get back a, a positive here. Um, the there are this would be some uh, fairly aggressive surgery to take that with even five millimeter margins. Uh, if if you felt that it was all in situ in a lentigo maligna. uh, I wouldn't necessarily advise doing it in a staged procedure, but that would be one option, skin grafts are another. Uh, There is the incredibly off-label use of uh, imiquimod for um, various malignancies. What I will say is it doesn't particularly work well in superficial squamous cell. It works okay in superficial basal cell, but not very good in nodular basal cell. And I have seen, I have used a Miquamat a half dozen times or so in this sort of patient. Uh, always older patients, either that dementia was a was an issue or they had significant other medical problems. And only after I really laid it out that this was a off-label use uh, to either the patient, if they were uh mentis, or their family if they weren't. Um, I say, that, that is another option if it really is just a melanoma in situ lentigo maligna. But you can't, you can't tell that just by looking, and you have to follow these patients really closely. I've had uh, several that have worked and one that has not. So I'm not super excited about a Miquamod for, for melanoma. But it, it, is, it is a potential option with this sort of patient after you get, after you get the, uh, the diagnosis now some other pearls you know what are more common bumps in the lentigo maligna and that's the uh, sebaceous hyperplasia which a lot of people have uh... photodynamic therapy works for that the patient's rich but i like i like electrocuting them i set my hyphurcator on two or it'd be twenty if you have a, that other type of hyphurcator it doesn't you know basically low low voltage and i just zap them until the patient decides they've had enough fun for the day um, now that you know of course shave biopsies are are good for the sticky out moles we always I still will occasionally put a divot on the nose, I mean, and I've done lots and lots and lots and lots of these, so I always do warn the patient about that, and um, sometimes I'll try and discourage it, especially if they have that really sebaceous nose, and I, I say, you know, this, yeah, I can fix your bump, I can, I can take off your witch's mole, but I, I can't guarantee it's not going to be, you're not going to have a little flat scar there that might be noticeable. But I guess the one message I always have is, is always, always send these to pathology. It's very frustrating to me to have someone come in with a weird-looking mole, and they've been seen either in a, um, a family practitioner's office or another dermatologist's office. And I say, well, what's, did they send it to pathology? No, they threw it away. And they go, oh, well, what was it? Because um, you have to remember that recurrent nevi look bizarre both histologically and clinically. And so it's um, you know if you think it's benign and the patient just really 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 doesn't want to pay to send it to pathology, I'll let the patient go home with it. Uh, just say it's just it's not good medicine to throw the throw moles throw melanocytic lesions in the trash after you take them off of people. Now large canthomas, going back to the bumps on the face, in cosmetically sensitive areas can be treated without surgery uh, using injectable chemotherapy. Uh, 5-FU and methotrexate are the ones uh, reported most often for that, uh, bleomycin behind that. And uh, actually, these are surprisingly cheap, as, as I discovered when, I, when I've been doing this with a few patients. Uh, in fact, uh, you can buy a whole crate of injectable uh, 5-FU for what one box of Valdera uh, uh, of will cost you. Just thought you should know. Now, there is obviously a technique to this, and you don't want to do this for the first time without someone that's done it before letting you know that you're doing the right thing, because basically you're, you're punching multiple lesions, multiple injections around these lesions. Where would you do this? Well, if you have a big giant one on the face, sometimes on the nose, sometimes on the ears. Uh, these are areas where you can get them to shrink. Uh, that, that's really nice. You definitely want to confirm the, the diagnosis with at least a, a little bit of a shave biopsy. My pathologist always reports squamous cell carcinoma, keratoacanthoma type. So that gives me grounds to not, you know, do a big, you know, five millimeter margin deep down to fat excision on everything. Now there's big keratoacanthomas and there's big keratoacanthomas. Uh, this is the latest one that I took on. This gentleman said that this appeared over three months. Now, I told you that. Yes, these can grow very rapidly. Uh, this patient's also used car salesman, and so he's sort of used to embellishing the positives and ignoring the negatives. Um, and uh, we actually took it on and started injecting, and I actually got it to shrink a fair amount, um, but then he started to have a whole lot more pain with it. It stopped getting smaller. His eyelid got swollen, and that's when I called up my Mohs surgeon who said I got this, I said, I have this big uh, KA, on, KA squame on someone's fe- face. Can I send them to you? He said no, I inject those, and so we ended up actually sending them to uh, to a plastic surgeon, and it turned out that this actually went down into uh, uh, part of the, the temporalis muscle, and uh, with perineural invasion, but no nodes, which for the size is is fairly remarkable. So, you know, think about doing these injections, but I would, based on my own experience, I'd give you some warning signs on when you have to be a little bit more cautious that this is maybe not something to inject but something to send for surgery or do it yourself if you're that heroic. I'm not going to take on something that big. Uh, if you have swelling that would indicate possibly some lymphatic obstruction and uh, in, in my patient's case uh, he responded at first very nicely and then his eyelids started to swell and so that, you know, that meant that the lymphatics draining that eyelid were probably being blocked. Disproportionate pain can indicate perineural invasion and he was starting to have that and that's when it really started to hurt otherwise that thing was remarkably painless for what it was but the other thing in in talking about cancer is if it looks like skin cancer on a young person's face it's probably skin cancer on a young person's face Um, this is uh... kind of an old HSV or slash impetigo lesion um... it actually cultured staph and so I have it listed as impetigo but every time I look at it I see kind of the red scalloped borders there, and I think it probably started out as a little patch of herpes that then became become impetigenized. This, that's been there for, uh, for a week. That's been there for four months and was being treated as impetigo also. Uh, this patient's 26, this patient's 27, uh, that's a squamous cell carcinoma on her nose. Um, History of tanning, history of growing up on the beach—you uh, know, you name it. it there's usually some uh, some sun exposure in these patients, but um, you know, this was not a bad tumor and was was able to be managed fairly easily. But it, it is a squamous cell carcinoma on a 27-year-old, and I've had several of these now. Uh, this is a 32-year-old who's been ignoring this for several, uh, probably close to a year or more, and uh, ultimately you know, people stopped treating it as infection and did some biopsies and found out that it was a uh, basal cell and a really big one. Uh, By the way, in terms of uh, doing the the biopsies on this one, here, I'll I'll switch to this side for a change, Um, they did a shave here which showed basal cell and in palpating the cheek, they they found induration. And this, as opposed to maligna, is a good place to do sort of test drills with your punch. And they did little punch biopsies which were positive for infiltrated basal cell there, there, and down there, everywhere where it felt firm. So it was known that this was going to be a bad one when they first went into it. But 32 years old, so it does happen. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is not, not every bump that looks kind of like a basal cell on the face is a basal cell. Not everything that looks like a benign nevus is a benign nevus. Um, this actually turned out to be an amelanotic melanoma now shave biopsy is not the optimal way to diagnose a melanotic melanoma but at least it was biopsied and we got a, got a piece of it now moving from the bumps to the rashes there are any number of things which will appear on the face and uh, to some extent we start out with the more acute things and we can have some of the more chronic things um, and then you can also have overlap which really confuses things when it, when it happens now, there are a couple of things. This one is not in the literature because I need to write it up someday, but I never have. Um, especially in young people that have seborrheic dermatitis, particularly right in here around the, uh, the alar groove, usually it's very red, very inflamed. And you'll start to treat it with all the things that work so well with everyone else, the topical uh, azoles that you're using, uh, mild steroids, combinations of azoles and mild steroids, and they just aren't clearing pull out your woods lamp on these people, and uh, as I say, they're usually teenagers to early 20s, and you'll find that every hair follicle uh, glows a, an absolutely glorious fluorescent pink, uh, indicating uh, you know, a high bacterial activity putting out these, uh, uh, these fluorescent pigments. And actually, they'll, uh, they'll get better with uh, topical erythromycin or clindamycin, which is not what you'd normally think of for a seb derm picture. So that, that is a... Uh, just something to keep in mind and one, someday I'll write that up and do some biopsies and think cultures and things like that. Uh, the other thing is just to keep in mind that um, African-Americans, Latinos, even some Asians um, will t- when they get seborrheic dermatitis will sometimes instead of having this vague uh, redness and rash which can be hard to see will actually have very discreet patches uh, either scalloped coming down the hairline or just appearing in the middle of the face that often be a little bit hypopigmented and they they won't look quite right and you'll start to think of discoid lupus every biopsy I have that came back seborrheic dermatitis wasn't such a patient that I finally flinched because they weren't getting better with mild steroids they weren't getting better with what should have been good seborrheic dermatitis treatment Uh, and they can be tough to treat but uh, occasionally you will be left with doing biopsies But also remember, there is DLE out there, and so if something isn't responding to treatment that should work, uh, it is time to do the biopsy. Also tinea versicolor on the face and neck, that that really isn't supposed to happen. Uh, But again, especially in my uh, young African-American men, I see this routinely, uh, that they may have the typical tinea versicolor on the back, but it goes up the neck, even up the face, sometimes even on the forehead. And in those cases, when I do the, do the KOH scraping, it's just as KOH positive for tinea versicolor as uh, your usual ones on the back. So again, just keep that in mind that in terms of eruptions on the face, there can be uh, some other things that you normally don't think of occurring on the face. Now, DLE uh, discoid lupus, chronic cutaneous lupus, is a tough problem. Because you know, if you do a biopsy to confirm it, that's going to leave a scar. But if, it, if it's DLE and you don't biopsy it, it's going to eventually lead to a scar. The high potency steroids you're going to use, either topically or injectable, uh, can leave you with atrophy and hypopigmentation. But if you don't treat it, the chronic cutaneous lupus is going to leave you with atrophy and hypopigmentation. And so I always tell my patients this up front, and this actually kind of touches on the, uh, the legal guy. Is that you maintain good communication with your patients and warn them that I am doing this because if I don't do this, you're going to have these problems, which may happen anyways. But that way, if they end up with a little bit of a scar and hypopigmentation, that they don't blame you only for, uh, for what happened. Now, uh, when you are giving out another thing, when I, I have patients that come in that need different strength steroids for different areas. you know Maybe they need that hydrocortisone valerate or the desonide for the face, but you know, they need that clobetasol or the beta dipropionate for their knees and uh, elbows, I always put on the tube exactly where they're supposed to put it. Fa- well, or face or non-face. Because if you don't, if, if you just kind of automatically let things go out as directed, as needed, as instructed, uh, the patient will at some point start to use things the wrong way. And they'll come back in and they'll, uh, they'll have telangiectasias on their face from using the clobetasol there and they're really angry at you because their psoriatic plaques in their knees are not responding to desonide. So um, always always in that case, when you're giving out two steroids like that, uh, specify in your prescription where you want them to have it. So uh, chronic cutaneous lupus can be, can be obvious. And this person, there's not a whole lot we can do for them anymore. This is chronic and this is burnt out. This is one of my most frustrating patients, uh, same patient here. Uh, this is DLE, lo- a, lot, a lot more subtle. And I so far haven't found, I found some things which have actually sort of held it back, but I pretty much have run this patient on a variety of topical injectable and systemic immune suppressing medicines and I'm, I'm slowly losing, but I'm still, still working on it. And she knows that I'm trying the best I can. Now moving from the face to the arms, uh, a lot of the same rashes will occur there that occur on the face particularly when you're talking about eczema and drug rashes and things like that. Some things you won't see, such as acne and rosacea. Uh, But then there are some other more unique things that you may find, like lichen planus. And certainly, ground zero for your contact dermatitis is the the hands and arms. And so that can be both acute or chronic. And a lot of these things can end up looking the same. Chronic uh, contact dermatitis, irritant dermatitis, and chronic eczema can all look the same. Their biopsies will be very similar. Um, but lichen planus, I like. If you, uh, if you use a dermatoscope, uh, the Wickham striae that we, we talk about, this fine uh, mesh on top of uh, lichen planus papules, really stands out with the, uh, with the dermatoscope. And, um, and I'll show some pictures of that. Another pearl is just that it, this is, if you can believe the history, when you're trying to sort out that irritant from allergic contact dermatitis, I ask the patient, okay, on your weekend off or, you know, two days off, whenever that is, how does it do? If it's really a chronic allergic contact dermatitis, it'll only get better minimally. If it's more of an irritant contact dermatitis, by the end of that weekend, especially a long weekend, it'll be doing pretty good. And that, that then can help you give them better advice uh, based on their, their work exposure on how to avoid the problem. Uh, usually it's uh, hand washing. Uh, hand washing uh, of all the, I, I do workman's comp, and I get a lot from the university. It's usually nurses, and uh, usually it's a hand dermatitis from overwashing washing because uh, only nurses wash their hands as much as we're supposed to. And I mean that as a compliment to the nurse practitioners out there, not, not as an insult. All the rest of us, we don't wash our hands as much as we should, and so our hands are softer, uh, But uh, but that's, you know the, the history in terms of how it responds on a weekend is very helpful there, but uh, but do remember that chronic contact and uh, chronic contact allergic and chronic contact irritant can look pretty much the same. Now sometimes uh, the classic on Wickham striae is to put a drop of oil, get it under good light, and use a magnifying glass. Well, your derm light pretty much does the same thing, and uh, you can you can often see these. Uh, sometimes you can see Wickham striae just with the naked eye. As you, especially on the genital area and this remarkable uh, eruption here. Uh, often lichen planus is incredibly purple and especially in, uh, in people of color it can leave hyperpigmentation which will stay for months if not years. And so uh, the darker the skin the more urgency I have to get lichen planus under control before it leaves them with uh, very unwanted hyperpigmentation. Now, kind of drifting from face to arms down to hands, there are some unique things that do appear on the hands more than they appear in other places. And uh, well, that's more by definition there. But just a uh, you know, word about a couple of these things here. Uh, first off, you know, erythema f- multiforme, the classic targetoid lesions, is usually due to infection. It's usually not due to drug. And the infection is usually herpes, though it can be some other things. Um, someone comes in with uh, targetoid lesions on the palms I can't guarantee you that it's not related to drug It's going to end up with full-blown Stevens-Johnson syndrome but it's probably not. Uh, I get a lot of uh, a panicky uh, referrals especially from pediatricians that you know the kid comes in with erythema multiforme and they're sure that they're going to end up in the burn unit shedding their skin. Um, certainly these patients need to be followed but that, that's probably not going to happen. That's more the Stevens-Johnson syndrome flavor of erythema multiforme. The erythema multiforme major with uh, toxic epidermal necrolysis, that's usually drug related. Uh, This is usually infection related. The uh, really puzzling thing is that you can also break out with EM without actually breaking out with the herpes. And uh, So someone that has episodic uh, erythema multiforme in the palms will sometimes respond to prophylactic antiviral uh, therapy. And uh, the one one other thing to, to really remember, if if you have your your particularly your babies with atopic dermatitis, and the steroids aren't working on their hands anymore, then um, you're probably dealing with uh, scabies. And I'll show some of that too. Um, this isn't the same picture that you'll find on your slides because this guy came in last week. Um, it was uh, bad hand, foot, and mouth disease. Well, the mouth disease was this blistery thing along the lip, which started at the vermilion and then just ran across his lip, and it was actually zinc positive and erythema multiforme. The the lesions of hand, foot, and mouth disease are small, oval, grayish lesions on the palms, the soles, and uh, on the palate, Uh, not not this. So this person had a primary herpetic stomatitis and erythema multiforme, and they got better with the uh, antivirals. This is one of my atopic patients that the steroids weren't working on their atopy anymore. And uh, these feet were absolutely crawling with uh, scabies. Now, word about doing uh, scabies preps, just to increase your yield. If if you're still doing it with a 15 blade, uh, let me help you out here. Um, You use these curettes. I use the disposable curettes. And you start out with a little puddle of oil. You dip the curette in there. And then you can go ahead and and scrape uh, burrows and lesions anywhere you want. I, when I'm dealing with kids, kids get really anxious when you go at them with a 15 blade. The other group that gets anxious when you go at them with a 15 blade are young men that have these red itchy nodules on the penis. They really don't want to see that 15 blade. And so this is a much more benign thing. It's also harder for you to hurt somebody with this. And with kids, I tell them this is my scratching stick. Show me where it itches and I'll scratch it for you. And you'll get some absolutely uh, glorious preps. Basically you, you scrape and periodically tap it into the oil. And then when you're all done, you run a CTA through there, and you'll have this pellet that, uh, that, that they'll give you, it'll increase your sc- uh, scabies prep yield uh, 100%, I guarantee, or your money back. So uh, I, I do these a lot. Another nice thing I do with the curettes, uh, particularly if you use the, uh, the 2 and 3 millimeter curettes, is for getting that uh, gradu out from under toenails for your KOH of your uh, onychomycosis. Again, much better, uh, much easier, much better, much less traumatic. Than, uh, than 15 blades. Now, in terms of danger when you're dealing with the palms, if the pitoriasis rose is on the palms, it's syphilis. I'm, I always uh, greet my patients with a handshake, and sometimes, you know, it's, hi, how are you doing today? What can I do for you? And you go, well, I got this rash on my palms. Oh, I hear the phone ringing. Um, be right back. <laughs> go wash my hands because uh, the lesions of secondary syphilis are swimming in spirochetes. Um, Remember that psoriasis on the hands and feet can look like chronic contact dermatitis. It will get better with steroids, and it will always come back, sometimes worse, every time you finish your steroid course. So if that happens, just remember, maybe, maybe we're on the wrong track and need to rethink our diagnosis. And melanocytic lesions on the palms and soles, even using dermoscopy, it, it, to me it always ends up that the, the malignant ones look rather benign, and the benign ones look rather awful. Um, if you need to biopsy it, biopsy it. Uh, a lot of times, people are a little scared of uh, doing biopsies on palms and soles, but uh, you can do it if you you do it if you need to. Now, the coppery color is sort of the the tip-off here, and this person may have something that looks like a pityriasis rosier rash in other parts of their body, but uh, if uh, if if PR is on the hands, now I have had once a negative RPR. But I, uh, I diagnose secondary syphilis in my clinic routinely. Well, semi-routinely. I had at least six so far this year, which is a lot compared to you know some folks I had two in one day. Of course, that's because I brought in someone's partner, and so that. But that that's cheating. Um, moving all the way out now to the fingers. Uh, there's all kinds of things that can occur there, including cancer. Um, just the if you're if you've been attacking a wart for a while, get out your derm light and get a good look at it. And if you see that red, it's probably a fibrokeratoma and you know, freezing usually doesn't work. Those, those are best treated with a curatage and desiccation. Uh, most important thing to take away from this is that in most patients you can use epinephrine on the fingers and toes. It used to be you shouldn't use it on the fingers, the toes, the nose, the ears, or the penis. I always use it on the ears, the nose, certainly on the glands penis I always use epinephrine because it bleeds like crazy if you don't. And uh, I have started to use it in my digital blocks now and I haven't had any problems. What would be the exception? Well, you wouldn't want to use it on a toe block, on an ingrown nail. You're going to be doing it on a diabetic with bad peripheral vascular disease. If there's someone who's going to have a problem with epinephrine, that's who it is. But it's actually OK to use epinephrine just about everywhere. Um, Mixoid cysts are a real problem, and I, I have treated those a bazillion different ways. Um, you know, I've sucked them out. I've frozen them. There's all kinds of things you can do. Uh, I've injected steroids into them. Um, you notice that you have to use different size needles for this. You can't aspirate a cyst with a, uh, with a 30-gauge needle. You need at least an 18 uh, to, to help pull that stuff out. And, and in answer to which of these things work, the answer is all of them and none of them. Uh, I've, had, I've had patients get better with all these, but I've also had failures with all these. And uh, sometimes I end up sending them to the hand surgeon that end up you know doing bigger procedures and excising them, especially if there is a connection with the, with the joint itself. But uh, there's all kinds of things you can do for, do for these. And I am running just a little bit behind, but then I started a little bit behind. So I'll, I'll speed up a little bit. Another thing that's very common on the fingers and toes is the pyogenic granulomas. Now, there's a message to get here. Always, always send pyogenic granulomas uh, to the lab. Uh, I have gotten a Spitz Nevis back on one. Uh, I personally have not gotten an amelanotic melanoma back, but I know someone who did. Uh, and it wasn't just a friend of a friend. I mean, I know someone that got an amelanotic melanoma back on something they were sure wasn't uh, a pyogenic granuloma. There are a variety of other tumors uh, that, that can show up with this. Um, and. Uh, Here's an melanoma, which was treated as a wart and then as a PG. So melanoma can look like some funny things. And uh, the other thing that that you need to be aware of is that subungual warts and subungual squames can look exactly the same. Now, if someone has this, and elsewhere on their body they have a lot of periungal warts, I will probably trend towards warts. But uh, if I have a person come in such as this person here, and this was their only lesion, and by the way, I've treated them for skin cancer and AKs, uh, you know, the, the, the concern for this being a squame was much, much higher. It turned out to be a wart, but you, you have to do the biopsy on these. And uh, basically, you just peel off part of the nail. Uh, you can actually do a shave biopsy, just like anywhere else. You don't have to do punches and things like that. Uh, I mean, either there will be viral changes or, or not. Now, moving uh, moving down the legs is, uh, Schomburg's disease is really, really common. I've seen a lot of different variations of it. But there are other things. Usually people are complaining of itching on the legs. And uh, one of your your hardest things are patches of lichen simplex chronicus that people get around the ankles. Those can be really hard. Um, We'll talk a little bit about some of these other things here. but. One thing to keep in mind in your clinic is that not all palpable purpura is palpable and not all palpable purpura is purpuric. And uh, by that, I mean that sometimes vasculitis will give you flat petechial lesions. Usually won't blanch, but they are not palpable. And I have had cases come in, which I'm gonna show you in a second, where what turned out to be a rip-roaring, IgA-mediated vasculitis, a classic Henoch Schonlein vasculitis, classic in biopsy, uh, wasn't purpuric when it first came in. So, oh and the, uh, the other thing to keep in mind, with necrobiosis lipoidica is that it may actually precede the diagnosis of diabetes sometimes by years. Now erythema nodosum, I don't, I don't see a lot of this. Um, I don't know whether it's because the, the pediatricians and the family doctors and the internists are attuned to it. I, in my 10 years in family practice I don't remember seeing a lot of it either though these uh, kind of painful nodules which appear. Uh, in terms of infection, strep is still the, the number one thing it's associated with. In terms of medications, oral contraceptives are the number one thing it's associated with. And so the history uh, is always very important on that. But also talk about drugs and herbals. And this applies to anything that do, has to do with drug eruptions, where you're talking about a regular old drug rash, or whether you're talking about erythema nodosum, um, is to keep in mind that if an herb, herbals are, have the ability to cause anything that any prescription drug can, over-the-counter medications have the uh, potential to cause anything a prescription drug can too. Uh, all the way on up to toxic epidermal necrolysis. So this is, uh, this is the, uh, the odd case I was talking about. The, the parable of the blind man and the elephant is, you know, the elephant came in and they all felt a different part of the elephant, and some people said, well, one guy grabbed the tail and said an elephant felt like a rope. Another guy grabbed the trunk and said, no, an elephant is like a snake. Um, So it depends upon which piece. This is the same patient on the same day he came in. This has been going on for for three weeks. No, excuse me, three days. And uh, he had these lesions on the legs, which had appeared, and were itchy, but also hurt. And then he had these lesions on the elbows, which itched like crazy. And I'm thinking, OK, that looks a lot like dermatitis or petiformis, well that really looks like your basic vasculitis. What are the odds of someone coming in with two things at one time? Well, pretty low, but maybe he's the one. So I did two biopsies. And that's the other thing that, that you keep in mind when you're doing your biopsies. If you have different morphologies, do multiple biopsies or else you can be misled by, you know, down by just biopsying one thing when they actually have two things except he only had one thing. He came in, uh, this is three days after that, now the leg purpura really looks ugly, it's, it's vasculitis all the way, and now the elbow lesions are purpuric and both of them came back vasculitis, uh, uh, actually IgA vasculitis, so you know, he basically had henoch Shinline purpura. But this was a very a te- a good teaching case for me that you know these itchy bumps on the elbows, which really, really, really looked like something else, actually were part of an overall picture. So, And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't uh, biopsied both. Now, the, the thing to keep in mind when you have your vasculitis patient is that anything that's going on in the skin might be going on in the kidneys, it might be going on in the gut, might be going on in the lungs, might be going on in the central nervous system. Now, I don't do uh, pan, uh, pan scans and you know, every blood test known to man when I have a vasculitis patient coming in. But I do always uh, check uh, the urine. Because uh, if there's going to be a long-term problem, it, it's going to be kidneys. Um, and I do follow these patients closely. And I follow them until their lesions are clear, they're off their steroids, and, uh, uh, and their, their urine is, no longer shows any blood. And then somewhere in there are the more chronic vasculitides that will, you'll figure out at some point in the, in the course. But someone that has uh, that HSP and has intense abdominal pain or has uh, you know, frank blood in their urine, they're in trouble. And it's not, not just from their skin. Now, the one thing that's sort of a fooler with, with vasculitis, which I see fairly frequently, is uh, thrombocytopenic purpura, which I fortunately see very infrequently. And it can look a whole lot like vasculitis when it appears. And so a CBC is always something I get right off the bat to make sure the person has platelets. And um, the best example that, I had someone that came in from a water park. They've been doing the body slides at a water park, and they had some really bad bruises on their buttocks and what looked like a vasculitis on their shins. And uh, they, they actually had unmeasurable platelets. It's like, I can't believe you were doing the body slides. Very lucky man. Uh, he actually ended up in the hospital for two weeks. Uh, they didn't want to let him go until he had platelets again. Um, Lichen simplex chronicus, incredibly common. Everybody has it. You can make your own. Just pick a spot on your arm, start to scratch it every day, and you'll make, make your own L, uh, LSC. But if it's not responding to steroids, it might be something else, and just keep that in mind. I uh, Actually saw this patient again just last week. Uh, but this is a lady that came in, no history of diabetes, had these plaques, which sure look like necrobiosis lipoitica. Um, she actually had a blood sugar of 400 and didn't know it. Um, we got her, got her diabetes under control, gave her a topical steroid, and I know this is sort of like the before and after pictures on some of your uh, anti-soriatic medicines where they really want to convince you that this is wonderfully uh, improved. But it is. You can see that the plaques have uh, broken up a little bit and are less prominent. She's not completely happy, but I've had to warn her that necrobiosis lipoidica. there will be something that she will see. But this was a case where she had an undiagnosed uh, diabetes, so when you see something that looks like uh, necrobiosis lipotica on the shins, uh, just get a, at least a finger stick glucose just to make sure that you're, you're doing okay. Now moving to the trunk, you know we kind of you know, ran down the arms to the fingers, now we're moving back up. A variety of things can appear on the trunk, um, including several different flavors of psoriasis. Um, remember that uh, guttate psoriasis in particular is often associated with strep, especially in children. To the extent that when I have someone that shows up with acute guttate psoriasis, I always treat them for strep. And that strep can be anywhere in their body. So you say, well, I'll do a throat culture. Well, if you're going to be complete, you're going to have to do a throat culture, an anal culture, and a nasal culture. And then also look in their armpits and groin because you may need that culture there too. Or you can just treat with an anti-strep medicine like Penn. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the herald patch of, of, uh, of, of uh, pityriasis rosea can appear anywhere. If it appears on the face, and this is sort of going back to the Davis rule, if it appears on the face, you're going to probably call it something else, and uh, you're going to miss it until they blossom with the rest of it. Um, but uh, remember, the herald plaque can occur in any part of the body, not just uh, a big patch on the chest or the abdomen, which is what most of the books show. So just remember, a uh, strip likes mucosa, and that mucosa can be there, or that mucosa can be there. Um, and uh, if, it, it can trigger uh, the uh, guttate psoriasis. Now, the other problem is there's other eruptions that can look something like guttate psoriasis, including peteriasis rosier and uh, other viral eruptions. Uh, I always ask myself twice before I give systemic steroids for those, because if you give a patient with gut-tate psoriasis, uh, steroids, you know what's going to happen. It'll look beautiful for a week, and then it'll come back worse than it was before. Um, and I, I have a fairly low threshold for biopsying uh, truncal rashes that aren't getting better. First off, it's not a bad place to biopsy. And every once in a while, if you have that kind of chronic pitoriasis rosea, it ends up being pityriasis lichenoides chronica, and that, that requires a different, different treatment and a longer-term treatment and of course CTCL and you can have chronic drug rashes and dr- chronic drug rashes can appear after quite some time uh, remember that uh, sarcoidosis can look like anything absolutely anything uh, and pityriasis lichenoides chronica while well, sometimes it looks like PR uh, especially um, in at least in the population I take care of, with a, a lot of uh, a lot of Latinos um, and uh, some African-Americans I end up with these kind of pale patches that are a little bit scaly. They don't look like much but they aren't getting better. I mean obviously you might say was well, this just pitoriasis alba? Well it's a little bit s- too scaly for that uh, and sometimes you just you know need to do the biopsy. This is uh, very often in kids and, but kids need biopsies too sometimes. So going up, the, working our way up the trunk now to the top of the head. Uh, scalp, there's a lot of things that can go on there. Um, photodynamic therapy can, can be used for a lot of different stuff if y'all are doing blue light or using the laser with your amino acid in your clinics. Um, the big problem is even though it kind of works for the arms for diffuse actinic keratoses, it's not FDA approved for that so it's a real thrash sometimes to get approval for it uh, either uh, through Medicare or through, uh, through insurance, but it can work. Um, it does sometimes take more than one treatment. I really like this for the scalp uh, PDT if you have that availability. Now, the other thing, you always have to remember with the scalp to warn your patients, and I'm not going to go into a hair loss lecture because that, that's a whole hour by itself, but always warn them. And I, and I tell them specifically, if I had the magic wand and I went prang, your, your head is fixed, your hair is fixed, it's going to be weeks before you see that hair come out, and it's going to be months before it really looks like it, it's filling in, and it's going to be several months before you can comb it out and it'll have that feel that you remember. So it is going to, to take some time. And uh, the other thing, if you are thinking about iron deficiency, uh, do either a ferritin or a TIBC, uh, because you, that, that will go down before you actually have a decrease in your hematocrit or your hemoglobin. And the best example I had was actually last week. I had a, someone who actually still had uh, a woman still having regular periods. She related having very heavy periods in the fat past, but it was doing better now. Uh, her um, her hematocrit was 39, and her you know hemoglobin was 13 something. Her ferritin was two, and so she and she was uh, losing her hair. So she she really had no iron stores left. The the shelves were bare, and the next thing that was going to happen was that she was going to start to get anemic. So uh, do if you are you know doing the lab workup for hair loss, uh, make sure you do check do some test that that checks for iron stores, sir. Can you say a word about uh, tinea amiantacea, just briefly about what you think causes it and how you treat it? Uh, with the with the second word that I've never been able to successfully pronounce, and I, I in tinea amniatacea, which is a close, that's as close as I'm going to get. It's basically psoriasis of the scalp, um, and it's a it's a very hard condition to treat. Um, in those patients, usually I, I hammer them with salicylic acid shampoos as sort of your pre-shampoo, because until you get the scale off, it's, it's not, you're not going to be able to deliver your whatever else it is, steroid, uh, tar, or any other preparation like that. Uh, they make incredibly expensive scalp massagers, or you can have someone scalp massage for them. Um, what I don't want them to do is to do really traumatic things to the scalp because that just aggravates psoriasis, because psoriasis hates being aggravated. So I use salicylic acid shampoos, uh, uh, peanut oil, uh, either in a a prepackaged with a steroid as it is in Dermasmooth or just buy that peanut oil that you cook the Thanksgiving turkey in and have them soak their scalp in that with a shower cap on overnight. That can help loosen that scale. Of course, systemic medication uh, will help the psoriasis on that too. But uh, technically not a tinea. Speaking of tinea on the scalp, there are times that you may have that tinea amniotaceae or something like that and uh, you're, you'll be hitting it with the steroids and the salicylic acid and it's just not getting better. Adults get uh, tinea capitis and by adults I mean 70-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 80-year-olds and I'm, I've always fooled. I just think it's bad seborrheic dermatitis or psoriasis of the scalp with thick white scale. And uh, KOHs are usually gloriously positive because uh, I've usually been feeding it with steroids, including clobetasol and things like that for a while. Now, you know, kids come in with this, and you usually think of it uh, pretty easily. But as I say, remember that ad- adults do get it too. And the action isn't in the, usually in the scale, though if you feed it with steroids for a while, you will get a positive uh, scale KOH. But uh, the KOH you want is actually on the hair. This is a uh, endothrix. The spores are inside the hair. Uh, and this is caused by T. tonsorans, And there's ectothrix, where they're on the outside. And that's the one that gl- glows green. Uh, this one will not glow under a wood's lamp. Uh, the other ones will. And I've seen adults with both. And so you, you do have to think about that. Another thing that can kind of look like seborrheic dermatitis but, but ain't uh, is uh, crusted scabies. Uh, the Norwegians prefer you not call it Norwegian scabies, because that's bad for tourism. Um, this, this little piece here, that used to be there. It's moving down because uh, this is absolutely swimming in scabies mites. So two points on this. One is if you do your standard permethrin neck down treatment, it ain't going to work. And so you need, there are times that you need to use your permethrin all over and or uh, use something like ivermectin, uh, which is off-label uh, for this. The patient's most likely to get uh, uh, basically your scabies from Hades are your... Um, Patients that are on immune suppressing medications have immune suppressing diseases, or in most of the cases I've seen, have dementia of some type. Um, you know, Parkinson's way down the line, not early Parkinson's, late Parkinson's, uh, Alzheimer's disease, multi infarct dementia, any of those things. And a lot of reasons for that, especially since these patients are often institutionalized and in uh, extended nursing uh, facilities. And uh, sometimes you end up with little epidemics running through the uh, uh, nursing facility. Uh, but this is, this is all scabies. You, you, can even, you can do your 15 blade on this one. You don't have to dig deep for this. Now, he's not going to have it just there. He's going to have it everywhere. So you don't have scalp-only scabies. Uh, he actually has it in his eyebrows, he has it on his nose, he has it on his cheeks, and he has it all over his uh, body. So, Now uh, this is one of the cases where I, I have to not believe patients, is when they say this, this has been here for uh, you know six months. Uh, to get a basal cell carcinoma that big takes not weeks, not months, not years. It takes decades. Uh, and a lot of times, these, most of the time, these are patients who are older and with dementia. And that's why it's taken so long for someone to bring them in. It's because the patient's not complaining, um, especially if they still had some hair covering it or they're wearing a hat, no one notices it. It doesn't hurt. Uh, It doesn't itch. And uh, at some point when a beautician or someone says, hey, you really have a problem here. Um, Obviously, surgery for both these, this is melanoma in situ here, and uh, this big basal cell, Surgery is problematic because you're talking about basically scalping someone and skin grafts or letting it heal by secondary intent for months and months and months. And this is one of the cases where you'll, you'll have to get with the, uh, the caregiver if the patient is not compass mentis and discuss, you know, what are your goals? What do you want us to do? And uh, document everything very very carefully. And that's probably, you know, this person actually had this excised. This was pre Now Nowadays, someone might try a in him. You can see the five millimeter margins around this absolutely gigantic uh, melanoma in situ. Going to finish up with the uh, naughty bits and uh, some of the things that, that occur down there. Uh, my private practice is attached to an urgent care center chain, um, Texas Med Clinic, for anybody down in San Antonio. I am the dermatology center at Texas Med Clinic. And I get all their naughty bits. So that's why I have so much syphilis. No, I get so many patients with syphilis. I don't have so much syphilis. A couple of things keep in mind. Recurrent shingles, that little old lady with the recurrent shingles patch on her butt that she has every three months, that isn't recurrent shingles. It's it's herpes. So go ahead and treat it. Treat it as herpes. The little old lady will not want you to use the H word. You can use high-potency steroids for often very prolonged period of times for genital lichen sclerosis and get away from it. But you have to tell the patient that, because what does the tube say? The tube says, never use this in the genitals, and uh, no more than two weeks. And I'm saying, no, no, uh, every day, three months. Uh, That's that's what it's going to take to knock back your, your lichen sclerosis. In lichen sclerosis, if you have an area that is new, beefy red, or just isn't healing and keeps breaking down, Uh, you do need a biopsy for squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, Extragenital lichen sclerosis, that is in other parts of the body, Uh, cancer transformation rate is just about zero. It's not not likely in genital lichen sclerosis, but it can approach 10%. So someone that has a non-healing area needs needs to have that biopsy. Um, Genital warts and molluscum, tell your patients don't shave down there. Everybody wants to be a porn star. I don't, I don't know what the, what the deal is here. Um, and, and what it'll do, it'll spread the molluscum and it'll spread the condyloma and it'll spread them all over the place. And instead of two or three, you will have dozens. And uh, you'll have to, you'll pay, you just tell them you can't shave down there. I've had some do it anyways. Um, just, just tell them, it's gonna make it harder. And the other thing, just like I said, if you have something that looks like a skin cancer in a 30-year-old, it's probably a 30-year-old with a skin cancer. If you have something that looks like a sexually transmitted illness, in a 70-year-old, it's probably a 70-year-old with a sexually transmitted illness. Uh, my personal best for diagnosis, secondary syphilis, is a 78-year-old guy. Um, we had to contact I mean, he actually was at a nursing home infecting multiple women there. So it was one of the more interesting public health discussions I ever had with the public health people who kept laughing.) Um, But it's serious stuff and it has to be taken care of. When you're doing your scabies prep, more likely with your curette than your 15 blade now, your highest yield to get scabies are in these areas that are hard to scratch. Uh, You can't walk around and scratch uh, discreetly unless you're a professional baseball player, in which case I guess you can. But um, if someone, if 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 someone has itchy red nodules on the penis or the scrotum, that is scabies until proven otherwise. And I will scrape them, I'll scrape them again, and if I don't find it, I'll probably treat them anyways. Because that's just, that is just that is so typical. In women, they can also get labial nodules, but uh, especially around the, the breast and the areola will sometimes uh, be a good place to get a good scabies prep. Uh, another place, by the way, is under the fingernails. Oops, sorry about that. Um, if you see breast cellulitis, it's prob- especially if it's unilateral breast cellulitis, it's probably cancer. And I diagnose breast cancer about every three years. Um, it's the inflammatory breast cancer. Now this person uh, is, is marked out for radiation therapy, so it was not a surprise in her case. But I do have patients that come in with what appears to be cellulitis that does uh, turn out to be uh, cancer. Uh, and then finishing, finishing up, the real danger with jock itch medicine refills, which my patients always want. They usually ask it on the way out the door. You're running behind, the, and you, you just want to give it to them and let them move on. Well, what is the medicine that they want refilled? Because it could be any of these things here. And this is the problem. What, what I see when peop- what people call jock itch range from tinea cruris, which you know, I guess kind of is jock itch, uh, on up to lichen sclerosis, LP, irritant contact, dermatitis, lice, scabies, pemphigus and even, even some cancers. Now, if you are running that far behind it, you're going to give the patient a, the prescription that they want. Don't, don't give them a bunch of refills. Uh, tell them, OK, here's one, but you need to make an appointment. We need to address this properly. The better thing to do is just get them back in, have them drop their trousers, and take a look and see what they are calling jock itch, uh, just to make sure that uh, you know, if it's something like this, which is erythrasma, that's, that's great. Um, you know, if it's an irritant dermatitis, you can, you can kind of manage that. Remember that anything can give a contact dermatitis either irritant or allergic. But what you're really hoping is that their jock itch isn't something like this, which is mammary Paget's disease. And this is an mammary Paget's disease that showed up last month. This, this has been going on for a while, uh, as in months, months to years. Um, because I've used up my time, I'm exactly on the nut. I'm going to stop here. But if there's other questions, I will take them at the end of the lecture after this one uh, on acne. So I will yield the mic, and uh, I'll see you in about an hour.